G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. Well folks, it's that time of year again. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Tim and, and everybody Merry else. Merry Christmas to you also, Chris. Oh, that's, and, uh, uh, yeah, and our audience at home, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. So what uh, traditions are you looking forward to? Oh, Christmas traditions. Well, today uh, I I went to the supermarket and I bought three kilos of prawns. Oh, nice. Did you find any eggnog? No, I haven't actually seen any. Do they even still make it? I haven't had any. Like- yeah, they got it at Woolies. The only way I can find it now actually is at this time of year at Woolies. And I remember like as a kid, you could always get like a 600 mil eggnog next to all the other flavoured milks like any time of the year. All right. But nowadays, nope. Yeah, it's it's seasonal. But I don't know. I think it's probably just because there's in the wider population a bit of a a stigma against eggnog, maybe a anti-nog stigma. Like Brussels sprouts. Uh, Because I did at one time drink an, an eggnog in front of somebody who was like, what are you what are you doing drinking eggnog like at this time of the year? And I was like, well, I just like it. And it was like, oh, but, it, you know, it's not even Christmas. And I was yeah. like, well, I don't even care. It's delicious. Like, I would I would drink that every week. Um, but, yeah, apparently, it's not the done thing. Not allowed. Frowned upon. So, uh, yeah, now I just have to binge on it every year, just annually. I go through about a six-week period of eggnog availability. Yeah. And uh, the rush is on to smash back as much of that as I can before it leaves the shelves, and I don't know where it goes. Presumably it goes off. You can't keep it that long. Yeah, I was going to say, you can't uh, stock up on it, I'm sure. I can imagine some of our uh, Northern Hemisphere friends scratching their heads, why would you eat prawns uh, at Christmas? Uh, it's going to be 43 degrees, I think, in Celsius. That's that's 43 Celsius. Uh, <laughs> what is that conversion? Let me see. Um, that's enough to make you sweat. Yeah, it's oh, very it sure hot. Is we don't have a white Christmas in Australia. We have a red Christmas because we the sun shines so bright. Red Christmas. That's 110 degrees. Uh, for for those uh, playing in the northern hemisphere, that sounds uh, hot. That's insane. Yeah, um, that's the kind of weather we get every so often at Christmas. I think this was going to be like the hottest one in like fifty years, but I recall a number of stinking hot Christmases. It certainly won't be my first one in forty plus degree weather because I've been uh-huh. uh, working up north a few times through Christmas, and yeah, we've had some stinking hot ones. Indeed we have. Well, we just have to keep cool. We just have to drink, you know, ice cold eggnog and iced coffee. And um, I, I'm much like yourself, I'll be having some uh, some cold cold meats, some ham and um, jumping in the pool, all that good stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's funny, like, how we, we still try and do those Northern Hemisphere traditions, you know, because we've, uh, for a lot of us, got English heritage and, so, you know, someone cooks a turkey and 
and you know all that kind of thing and you're all crammed <laughs> into the house trying to take advantage of the air conditioning and then someone opens the oven and brings out this <laughs> burning hot tray of like cooked veggies and yeah and, and an enormous um stuffed bird of some description and well, the heat just floods back in, and you're like, oh, get me out of the house. You come outside of the house, yep. and you're praying for the sea breeze. Uh, it's just that, <laughs> that classic conundrum of trying to eat traditional food in the in the sweltering hot weather. Yep, so we'll be spending uh, probably the next uh, two or three months wearing shorts and singlets at every opportunity besides work and church. Yeah, pretty much. And, uh, yeah, I mentioned the... The um, the prawns. I, I get this uh, big box of cooked and frozen um, tiger prawns, and just get those out, uh, thaw them, make up some tasty sauces and uh, some salad to go with. And yeah, we're just gonna sit around the pool eating that, and uh, there'll be a few other tasty. Christmas dishes, you know, we still do things like Christmas pudding and oh. that kind of thing, um, which is really weird to be eating in Australia, to be honest. Like, we just do it for tradition's sake because nobody feels like eating pudding in the height of summer. <laughs> yes, I think it's also the same reason why we uh, have Christmas crackers with uh, paper hats and jokes that get worse uh, every year. Oh, oh, those those paper hats and like. You're sweating like hell, and you put one of them paper hats on, and it just kind of melts to your head. Yep. Uh, thankfully, uh, being bald has its advantages. Yeah. Sometimes the the coloured dye comes out of the hat and goes <laughs> into your skin. Oh boy, you might want to see a physician about that. Long term effects. Is it? Yeah. What about those horrible little party favours that you get in the Christmas crackers, like nail clippers? Mm. Like, what the hell is that? Like. Why can't you get something nice in there? Like, I don't understand those. A thimble. You know? <laughs> like, what's up with that? You could use it for Monopoly. Oh, no. Monopoly already comes, you know, with all the bits. Maybe Sorry. we should just introduce them to Monopoly. We could play yep. Monopoly with the Christmas cracker party favours. Mm-hmm. That would just throw a new spin on the game. Christmas you know, thing to Monopoly. Advance your tweezers around the board. Um, or that dodgy bottle opener that doesn't actually open any bottles. Or the emery board, the nail file. Oh, the emery board, that old classic, yeah. Yeah, nothing more disappointing as a young boy than getting an emery board. Yeah, well, that's Mother's Day sorted. Yeah, <laughs> just repackage that one for later. <laughs> uh, no, we're much, you and I are much better sons than, uh, than that. So yeah. what a year we have had. It's been a year. Uh, it, it has been a, a big year, uh, and, quite a learning curve for us. Yes, particularly you, learning all these new technical skills. Um, oh, so, yeah. And uh, the various social media promotions and, and writing books. Well, I guess that was last year, but um, all yep. the good stuff that goes with it. Um, it's been an interesting journey, and I'm looking forward to what 2022 holds for us. Yeah, it's going to be great. I mean, who knows where it's going to take us? And the world itself is changing at a phenomenal rate as well. I, you know, who knows what things are going to look like this time next year. But let's not get too carried away. I'm a little bit angry. I'm a little bit upset because I'm still no closer to getting a flying car that folds up into a suitcase or a robot made that cleans the house. 
it's true. The Jetsons, they lied to us. Yeah, it happens every year. You know, every time I watch Back to the Future, I say flying cars. Yeah. Still no closer. Uh, anyway, let's let's talk about birth stories since it's Christmas. But I'm not going to start with Jesus, though, because uh, if we do that, we're missing some vital context. I did talk a bit about this last week, so it won't be surprising for those who've been following that and paying attention to their Old Testament. We talked at the beginning of this season about the Hebrew word toledot and mentioned that it usually comes at the beginning of a story that connects people with their past by showing a common point of origin. And then the story goes on to explain who or what came forth from that point of origin. And of course, Genesis 2 provided the exception to the normal rule there. But you will find as you go through Genesis that there are 10 of these Toledot structures. So who gets their own story of origins in Genesis? We have the heavens and the earth. We have Adam, Noah, Noah's sons, Shem, Terah, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. So I know you're a keen reader and keen listener following along at home. You've been following along and paying attention to all these names, and now we're going to read the story of Abraham. But I didn't see or hear Abraham on that list. Yeah, that's right. Actually, we're not. Abraham doesn't get his own story. There's more than one reason for that, but only one that I really want to pay particular attention to for the purposes of this episode. Let's read about Ishmael. We're going to start with Genesis 15, just verses 1 to 4. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. Here we find out that Abram's insecurity about his fate in the afterlife, which in the ancient world was tied to your ability to have children who would sustain you with offerings in the afterlife, was put to rest when God promised that he would indeed have an heir who came from his own body. As we know, Abram then goes about his own way of trying to make that happen, which results in the birth of his son Ishmael through his servant Hagar. Here's the description of how Ishmael comes about from Genesis 16. And again, verses 1 to 4. Abram's wife Sarai had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave, perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan ten years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Right, so we have very clear language here, an obvious attempt at communicating the fact that an ordinary sexual union took place between Abram and Hagar, which resulted in her pregnancy and was followed by the natural birth of Ishmael. And yet the promise of God is not fulfilled. And I might suggest here that the reasoning behind that, aside from the fact that it contradicts the word that God had spoken to Abram, is that God is certainly not going to fulfill his promise through the provision of a slave girl who came from the household of an Egyptian representative of a foreign god. 
Yeah, when you put it that way, it does make a lot more sense why they didn't just go with Ismail as the chosen one. Yeah, yeah. Putting that aside, though, God later appears to Abram again, changes his name, gives him the covenant of circumcision and promises his son Isaac. And here's the story of how Isaac comes about from Genesis 21, verses 1 through 7. The Lord came to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time God had told him. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made me laugh and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne a son for him in his old age? So was it really that first verse that told us all we needed to know and then the rest of it just serves only to add the details and to drive home the point that this was a miraculous occurrence? You know, where's the account of sexual interaction? Where is the story of intimacy between Abraham and his wife that results in her pregnancy? Yeah, good point. There isn't one. If you read the previous chapter, that is chapter 20, it should be fairly obvious that Abraham's time with Abimelech had nothing to do with it since God had made Abimelech himself unable to have children as long as Sarah remained in his courts. That in itself is actually a really unusual story because the Bible generally has nothing to say about male fertility. Whenever there's a situation in which the woman is unable to conceive, it is referred to in terms of her own barrenness and it's never anything to do with the inability of men to produce fertile seed. That's not a sexist thing. It's more a case of you know, this is where their biological understanding is at in this ancient culture. They just didn't have the framework for understanding male fertility the way that we do. So it's interesting then that in this particular case, the healing of Abimelech is specifically mentioned, and that's precisely so that we know who fathered Abraham's son. It wasn't Abimelech. We're really left with absolutely no doubt that this child came from Abraham's own body, as God himself had promised back in Genesis 15. But there is no mention of the sexual union that produced this miraculous birth when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was equally well past childbearing age. So I'm not saying that Abraham was not the father of Isaac, but I am saying that the author of Scripture here is deliberately not telling us that little fact. You see now the contrast between the stories of Isaac and Ishmael. Yeah, Ishmael has a natural birth after a natural conception to his natural parents. Right, but then Isaac's promised to Abraham, and all we're told is that the Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Where's Abraham? What about his Toledot? What's the connection point that ties us all back to Abraham genealogically? It's completely absent from the biblical text. Let's look at how Jesus uses this idea. In Matthew 3, verse 9, Don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. And Jesus was there talking about the tombs of the faithful that surrounded them. He's talking about the resurrection of believers. Nobody claims Abraham as their father except those born outside of the covenant community, outside of faithfulness to God. The man of the flesh is born of the flesh, but the man of the promise is born of the promise. Typically, what we see in any group that wants to claim authoritative heritage, they appeal to genealogy to make their claim. 
Jesus is saying, I don't care about your genealogy. I don't care about your claims to authority. I don't care about your heritage. What I do care about is your allegiance and your faithfulness. I'm looking at your heart. Because scripturally speaking, what does get transmitted genealogically is the transgression of Adam, not the authority of Abraham. That's not a great thing to be claiming. And as I've said before, the inheritance of the transgression is only broken by adoption into the divine family. Unless you're born again as a child of God, you cannot see the kingdom of God. But let's get back to our story. I want to stress one more time that this doesn't mean that Isaac was born without a human father. It just means that the biblical text is deliberately making the point that Isaac's birth was supernatural in its origin, an act of God himself, and that is important because it goes some way towards setting the stage for the expectation of Messiah. It does this by breaking the chain of dependence on human structures, on human genealogy, on descent from human kings, on the gifts given by human kings, and in particular, on the gods that these kings represent. It also illustrates that sin isn't genetic, because if you can break the genetic chain anywhere in the line and still have sinful people, the reason for sin isn't biological, it's cultural. You have to resist the culture to break free of the temptation to sin. And that leads us on to our next supernatural birth in the biblical story. Let's talk about Jacob, the one who's always running after the prevailing culture, and Esau. This is from Genesis 25, verses 21 to 26. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. But the children inside her struggled with each other, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When her time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. The first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out grasping Esau's heel with his hand, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. Once again, a supernatural conception to an aged father as a result of God's response to Isaac's prayer. Once again, we have the absence of any kind of sexual union referred to in the text. Once again, I suppose I have to say that just because the sexual act isn't referred to, it doesn't mean that these brothers didn't have a biological father. But as we've already pointed out, that's not the point of the text. And one of the brothers has a disturbing, almost monstrous appearance. So this would be an example of how God uses literature to teach his people and to, to shape and to mould their expectations. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. The emphasis for the purposes of storytelling is as much what you are told as what you are not told. And that's not adding things to scripture, just observing what is there and what we might expect to find but isn't there at all. Now, the appearance of being beast-like is one thing, but the character of a beast is something else entirely. And Esau had his faults, but he was no monster, contrary to some crazy internet theories that suggest he was a vampire or something. Actually, it's the good character of Esau that contrasts with the wickedness of his smooth-skinned, smooth-talking brother. So when the angel of the Lord appeared to tell Samson's mother that she would bear a child who would deliver their nation from oppression, who... Who knows what kind of thoughts were running through her mind? Actually, I just want to say here that although many people lament the absence of a name in the text for Samson's mother, I really think it's awesome. And that's because by not naming her, the author has identified her with women generally. She could be any woman. And in that sense, the author is saying that 
you, the woman listening to this, you could be used by God to bring about the deliverance of God's people. So women ought to be honoured for their indispensable role in the destiny of the people of God. I've talked a bit before about the circumstances of Samson's birth and the way in which the author of Judges in chapter 13 really endeavours to bring to mind the story of the rebellious sons of God in the days of Noah. Certainly the ambiguity around his parentage is highlighted by the questions raised by her husband, Manoach, whose name reminds us of Noah. Incidentally, the name Samson is related to the Mesopotamian god Shamash, who is called the Judge. We're getting some pretty clear indicators of a connection to the Genesis 6 story here with allusions to the flood narrative, a baby that comes about as a result of a divine interaction with a woman, although in this case the angel of the Lord simply delivers a message and that's all and the connection of deity in the name of the child. But then Samson's actual life becomes a terrible tale of his constant leanings toward fleshly appetite and sinful desires, while he's supposed to be the supernaturally empowered saviour of the nation. Basically, God saves Israel in spite of Samson, and somehow manages to have him remembered as a hero in the end. Samson seems to have found the worst way possible to be a, to be a good guy. Yeah, he wasn't even good at being bad. But by the time Samson's story is over, we're left with the lingering impression that it's going to take more than a miraculous birth like Isaac, and more than an intimidating appearance like Esau to deliver God's people. It's going to require more than an ordinary man with the name and strength of a god to truly redeem God's people. It's going to take somebody who can maintain the holiness that God expects of an image bearer, someone who can truly reconnect the divine and the human in the manner in which they were intended. So the hopes of the nation were lifted when Isaiah foretold the virgin birth, but there was a long time to come before that prophetic word would find fulfilment. In the meantime, Israel rose and fell under a succession of kings. Kings, unfortunately, are ultimately swayed by the culture that expects tyranny of them and yet grieves under its weight. Eventually, it was that culture of tyranny and idolatry that brought about the need for God to break the monarchy with exile. Israel had been commissioned with representation of God in his land, but instead they capitulated to the evil around them and had to be removed from the situation. It's not enough to be in the place where God has put you. You have to be about the Father's business, not being influenced by the culture, but influencing it as a representative of the Father. And that was Adam's mistake. Slowly, the nation rebuilt itself. Although there were glimpses of geopolitical freedom, the nation lingered in an exile of the heart. The northern tribes had been absorbed into the wider world out there. The southern exiles had returned in part. Some had elected to simply stay in Babylon. The former strength of the nation that had withstood the Egyptians, the Hittites and the Greeks fell to Rome. It was going to take more than horses and chariots to set Israel free, but their expectation had shifted away from notions of spiritual revival and become mired in political concerns, which is what tends to happen when you get comfortable with your situation. And then Jesus came along. Oh, thank goodness for that. I thought this was going to be a Christmas special without uh, mentioning Jesus. <laughs> Took us a while to get there. You know, you've got to build to it. True. So the incarnation of Jesus Christ served as a sign that what occurred was indeed the work of God. Only the divine can cause the manifestation of a human birth to a virgin. So... The very fact that Mary's husband-to-be was not involved in the conception of Jesus indicates that we should be thinking along the lines of a divine human interaction, and that in itself should be enough for a Hebrew audience to make the connection back to Isaiah and his prophecy that the virgin shall be the child, 
in conjunction with the Genesis 6 narrative. However, the virginity of Mary can't be forgotten about. This was not a sexual act between God and Mary. And it's important because we need to grasp that this was nothing like the sexual violence of the lesser gods of Genesis 6. This is instead an act of divine manifestation where God himself became a human being and began to live as one of us. And that leads us into the idea of the expectation that the Messiah would indeed come by supernatural means. And in fact, the way that Jesus' own earthly parents accepted what they were told by angels and by Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, goes to show that it was not considered to be an impossibility or the wrong way for the Messiah to come when it was revealed that he would be born of a virgin. Now, the relevance of the incarnation to the events of Genesis 6 and indeed the entire primeval history cannot be overstated, but it is specifically Genesis 6 that is in view when Luke recounts in the first chapter of his gospel the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And if you've been reading my book, or if you're familiar with the work of Amy Richter, who I have referenced in my work, then you'll understand that the inclusion of the names of several women in Luke's genealogy of Christ is not an accident. Those names are there to call to the reader's mind the stories associated with them, the things that the women did, and the connections that those stories have back to the fall of the sons of God, and the things that they taught mankind, which are touched on in Genesis 4 and elaborated on in First Enoch, which of course ties all these threads together and was culturally relevant to Luke's audience. The perfection of the incarnation is important too. When Josephus told about the giants, he said that they were fearsome, terrible and grotesque. And yet Jesus came as an ordinary baby boy, growing to become a man who was by all accounts physically unremarkable. He didn't need to be tall or strong or imposing or charming. He was ordinary and ordinary is perfect. And there is hope for us yet. Amen, brother. The incarnation as an act of God in in communion with humanity, fulfills the prophecy of Genesis 3.15, polemicizes the acts of the watchers in Genesis 6, and rebukes the ambitions of man recorded in Genesis 11. The fact that this divine union produces the heavenly son of righteousness, the exact opposite of that which was produced by the union of the sons of God with daughters of men, is significant. The incarnation also heralded the entry into our world of the kingdom of heaven, because the king had indeed come, and there can be no kingdom without its king. And yet, as the New Testament makes clear, the kingdom has not yet come. The kingdom was heralded by John the Baptist, and yet the world did not embrace it, and indeed they rejected Jesus Christ, not knowing that it was necessary for the reversal of the fall of mankind by means of the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus came as the king to plant a seed that he will soon come to harvest. His kingdom stands opposed to all earthly kingdoms, and since it was the Nephilim and their descendants, the Rephaim, who claimed kingship over all peoples of the earth and oppressed them and subjugated them, Jesus Christ comes to liberate and to set mankind free, giving gifts of the plunder he took from his enemies, gifts sanctified for the building of his church. As the Mesopotamian Apkalu traditions talk about the introduction of culture that made Babylon great, so the Bible reverses culture by disconnecting humanity from culturally inherited sin and reconnects people to God the Father by the indwelling spirit of Jesus Christ. Jesus also provided an example of how we would live in his kingdom, not by fulfilling the appetites of the flesh as the Nephilim did 
and as the demons continue to try to do through their human hosts. But instead, Jesus showed that he is the bread of life. He provides the living water. And these are the things that we need in order to live as the subjects of his kingdom. So let's keep ourselves mindful of this as we continue through the festive season and commemorate the amazing gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well said as always. And Merry Christmas, everyone. So, Tim, are you up for one last giant question for the holidays? Yeah, why not? Excellent. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. I got a question from Ryan who asked me recently, what are my thoughts on the timing of UFO disclosure? So for those might have been under a rock uh, over the last couple of years, the uh, US government officially came out and said, yes, there are unidentified flying objects or they're, they're now calling them unidentified aerial phenomena because apparently changing the acronym makes a difference. Now that they're acknowledging these things, they've actually released footage from the armed forces uh, to that effect and shown the the world at large uh, a little snapshot, I guess, of the kind of stuff that they're getting reported from uh, military personnel. Undoubtedly, there's a lot of civilian reports as well, but what they've what they've released came from the I think predominantly the US Navy. So bringing that out into the public eye and having government officials talk about that in the mainstream media is what they've termed uh, UFO disclosure. I guess my my first question uh, when I think about this disclosure event is... uh, so what? Because I think for the vast majority of the populace who have been watching television and reading popular books uh, over the last 70 years or so, the idea of the UFO phenomenon uh, is really culturally entrenched already. There's nothing new here for for anyone who has paid any attention to any of the stuff that's been talked about in the in the public uh, forum, it just it seems to me very much like the government's coming very late to the party, and I'm not sure what they expected to get out of making this disclosure statement. Uh, they issued a report which really didn't say much, but. Uh, there, there was some interesting stuff in the report because they talked about some of the characteristics of these phenomena. So we're talking about objects with a metallic appearance that appear to be some kind of powered craft, and we don't know what the propulsion systems are. They appear to be intelligently guided. They're capable of manoeuvres that no known human 
based technology is capable of. And from a physics perspective, uh, certainly these craft are capable of manoeuvres that we simply can't do because of basic physical limitations. So things like high speed uh, turns at sharp right angles, uh, acceleration at, at a rate that would destroy any man-made object subject to those kind of forces. It's, it's those kinds of characteristics that have led people to say, well, it's unidentified because we, we haven't got a clue what kind of things can do this. It seems to me that the only way we're going to get close to any kind of understanding of these matters is probably by getting a better understanding of quantum physics. I'm no scientist by any means, but uh, it seems quantum physics is the field you want to be studying when you're talking about objects that behave differently when observed, uh, which is one of the characteristics that was noted with these craft and the ability to be in different states at the same time, which is a, a, a trait of particles observed in quantum physics experiments. This is the kind of stuff that these craft are supposedly able to do. Apparently they go just as well underwater as they do in the air and actually transition from air into water and, and water into air without any difference in the way that they travel. So these are some pretty pretty crazy technologies, if, if technology is the right word. It's very hard to talk about this stuff without putting words in the ears of the listener because uh, when we talk about powered craft and we talk about technology and this kind of thing where we're already getting into uh, mechanical concerns and ordinary physics and things like that and yet we can see that certainly nothing that's ever been constructed on this planet and nothing we can even imagine uh, theoretically is capable of this kind of thing to me that that makes us stop and think well perhaps this isn't a mechanical concern at all this is why i come back to quantum physics because i'm sort of thinking okay well let's uh let's consider that there are some things that don't necessarily behave the way that we expect ordinary objects to behave uh, can exist in multiple states and uh, move in different directions at the same time uh, depending on the point of view of the observer i mean this is all really perplexing stuff but the the main point and getting back to uh, ryan's question the timing of this disclosure it you know do i consider that it's uh, significant or important in some way what what does it mean that we've been told about this now as i said i think the u.s government's pretty late to the party they're not telling us anything we didn't know i understand there's been a lot of jumping up and down from the uh, shall we say the pre-millennial evangelical camp there's, there's been a lot of excitement uh, about this because it sort of uh, flows into the belief that there's this uh, 
great deception coming in the end times, this great deception could be the UFO phenomenon. In other words, uh, we're being primed by the governing authorities to believe that aliens are real, that they're out there, and that they're abducting people. And if they're abducting people, then that explains what's going on uh, when people disappear. So if a whole bunch of people disappear suddenly, which is many people expect in the form of the rapture of the faithful uh, prior to the imminent return of Jesus Christ, then uh, that could just be explained away as an alien abduction. The purpose of that deception would be to basically blind people on the earth who remain after the rapture to the possibility that the return of Christ is imminent and that it's time for repentance as a last chance before the continued unfolding events of the day of the Lord and the final judgment. So I don't know if that exact scenario framed uh, Ryan's question sort of in the background and and might have uh, prompted it. All I can say is that's on the table. I can't rule it out. I think it's pretty clear that whatever we are observing in our atmosphere doing crazy things, uh, both in the air and underwater, certainly has connections to spiritual phenomena. Uh, We've talked before on this program about the the nature and attributes of uh, small e Elohim, so intelligent entities that are not embodied or perhaps disembodied. And certainly there's, there's nothing in the Bible that could tell us that they can't turn up looking like spacecraft or something like that. Can't rule it out. And certainly if people are buying into the whole science fiction narrative and particularly for those getting into things like the works of Eric von Daniken and Zechariah Sitchin and all that sort of uh, pseudo-scientific approach to ancient mythology, for those who are, you know, getting into the ancient aliens thing and all that, Uh, it's going to seem like the most natural thing in the world to just connect those dots and go, right, well, these are the the old gods coming back to to rescue humanity and that kind of thing. Uh, There's all manner of weird uh, theories and explanations people are going to offer, but nobody is going to be turning around and saying, this is all a deception and we all need to turn to Jesus Christ and repent. Having said that, This view has now been around for decades. For those of us who do subscribe to the idea that the UFO phenomenon is a demonic deception, then we got to think, uh, is that the great deception? Could there be something else going on? And we're fixated on this one and we might actually miss it. So I think we've got to keep that in mind too. Just because this particular thing seems to make sense, it doesn't mean that it's the only trick in the book. There could yet be a greater deception coming, or perhaps already here.
with that in mind, I'm reluctant to place too much weight on the importance of UFO disclosure at this time. Because I'm sort of thinking, well, how do we know this is it? This great deception that threatens to deceive even the elect. I don't think it's wise to turn around and say, well, you know, this is it. Uh, We've picked it. And, uh, you know, you can bet the house on this one. I think uh, the world may yet be in for a surprise. And this may be part of it. It may not. But I don't think that UFO disclosure actually changes anything i don't think that just because the u.s government says so now it's okay to believe in uh, aliens and in and ufos and that kind of thing as, as if there were people sitting at home going well i don't believe it until my government tells me and now that they've said there are ufos well okay um now i believe i, I seriously don't think anyone puts that much weight on what the government puts out there in a press release so I, I think just that one point alone, logically, I think, destroys the idea that uh, this whole disclosure event is uh, some major element in an unfolding conspiracy to deceive the, the masses. Uh, having said that, uh, as I said, it's still on the table and it will be interesting to see what comes out as we see uh, continued uh, dis- disclosure events. Yeah, I'll, I'll be certainly following those things with some interest. Although, as I've already said, I'm I'm not really a a science fiction guy when it comes to the study of the scriptures. I mean, I I love Star Wars like lots of other people, but um, I'm not using it to interpret my Bible, and I would suggest that you don't either. So, uh, a careful study of what the Bible tells us about the end times, the last days, the nature of that great deception, I think will be more fruitful than watching for government press releases on uh, weird things that the Navy have seen. That's really all I've got to say for that. Time to wrap it up to uh, one last time, say Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays and all that, and we will see you again soon. We will. Thanks for listening. We're going to take a little break until New Year and come back fresh and smash it out from there with uh, with some more interesting material for the podcast. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, 
please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. I'm going to edit the hell out of that. <laughs> nah, that was good. You explained it well. <laughs>